Business as usual is over. 11FS's Benjamin Enser and Sarah Kachansky have put together a comprehensive report analyzing the short, medium, and long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on financial services. They outline how banks, investment management firms, and insurance companies will need to adjust to meet the demands of the new normal. You can read the report right now for free at info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. In our remote working locations for episode 138 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Libra seeking regulatory approval, China trialing its digital yuan, and Andreessen Horowitz deepens its commitment to crypto. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm thrilled to be joined by three Brilliant guests today. First up, we have uh, Garrick Hillman, who's head of research at blockchain.com. Garrick, it's been a while, sir. How are you doing? Doing great, Simon. How are you? Yeah, really well, all things considered. The UK has decided to rain at last after uh, sort of four weeks of quarantine. Uh, it's finally good to have the British weather and not having the sun making fun of us. So I don't know if it's the same way you are. Yep. No, here in London, uh, the, the sun has certainly helped with, uh, with lockdown, but uh, it is my gardens appreciating today's weather, no doubt. Absolutely. And we're joined by Isabel Corbett, who's head of government relations at R3. Isabel, how are you doing? I'm quite well. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Really, really enjoying the opportunity to get into some uh, crypto and blockchain stuff this week. And of course, last but not least, uh, making a debut today is uh, Max Cantella, uh, who's co-founder of, I never know how to say this, Zilla? Is it just Zilla? The Q always confuses me. Zillica. Zillica. There we go. You got me. Like I, I've had a few people say different things, but Zillica. Uh, for the uninitiated, remind everybody what Zillica is. Sure. So uh, Zillica is a high-throughput public blockchain platform. Um, we basically strive to achieve this, this golden trilemma. Um, so in designing the platform, which went to mainnet uh, January 2019, we achieved high throughput, so the platform can scale to thousands of transactions a second. Um, it's, it's, it's decentralized. It's secure. Um, we've built our own uh, smart contract language, which is formally verifiable so that we, we, we don't launch applications that have, uh, have bugs that can be, be attacked, um, of course. Um, and... Over and above that, over, over the last uh, 18 months, we've strived really hard to bring adoption to, to the blockchain. And um, so there's, there's quite, a lot of, uh, quite a lot of projects running on, uh, on the platform, including enterprise ones. Um, we're also working with a partner in Singapore where we've launched a, a Singapore um, a dollar-backed stablecoin, and, and that's, uh, that, that's us. And I'm sure many, many more things as well. Um, listen, uh, it, we'll cover this on the end of the show where people can find out more. So if people are interested, do do hang on to the end of the show. Um, first story that was this week, I've got to get us to uh, Business Insider. This is about Facebook apparently scaling back Libra as it tries to win regulatory approval. Announced on the 16th of April, Libra will now be linked to individual currencies and be overseen by global watchdogs, which always sounds way more cool than it is. Libra's governing body is now also seeking the go-ahead from Switzerland's market watchdog and will offer a redesigned token based on currency-pegged 
coins. And although the lineup of single currency is still uh, undecided, uh, Libra cited stable coins based on the dollar, euro, sterling as possible examples. Uh, it would also offer a, quote, revamped Libra coin, a composite of the single currency tokens potentially for use in remittances. Libra said the design would now help governments transform payment systems, and the revamp could allow governments to directly integrate any future central bank digital currencies into its network. I'm going to come to you, Isabel, first, because you know Libra, when it was first announced, uh, didn't receive the warmest welcome from regulators. Um, do you want to give that some context as to maybe why that was, and you know what what some of their concerns might have been, and and do you think this will assuage uh, any of those concerns? Yeah, sure. So, you know, what you just said is right. And I think it's it's widely acknowledged that their launch was a bit of a blunder, if you will. So they're very much starting on the back foot with regulators. And I think that the most simple reason for why it was a blunder was they just didn't prepare central banks and regulators for what they were going to say. And when you're suggesting something like a global stable coin, it, that's simply a bridge too far without any sort of warm up. You know, we at R3 definitely saw that as a risk from the beginning. So we started engaging with regulators and central banks as soon as the company started, knowing that if you're going to suggest uh, using a technology in an important market or in this context to underpin uh, what becomes a basket of currencies for kind of a, a global coin to be used. That's a pretty shocking proposition. And even though it's really exciting, excitement isn't always what regulators are looking for. You know, excitement actually creates a little bit of a pullback because they, they proceed methodically. They are obviously risk averse and they're charged with protecting um, the world markets and the world financial systems and preserving uh, stability and limiting risks and, and looking out for consumers. So, you know, I, I can't say what governments and central banks will say to this, uh, to this newer version. But what I can say is that governments' concerns, regulations, and standards remain the same no matter what technology is used. So as long as Libra complies with applicable regulations and meets their standards and doesn't attempt to take power that's reserved for the central bank and doesn't pose a systemic risk or risk to consumers or compromise privacy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then, yeah, I would expect them to be fine with it. But that's a long list of, of things that are difficult to meet. And I'm not so sure this current proposal does fit those requirements. That, that's an interesting point to pick up. I mean, Garrick, I'd love your views, because I think uh, the, you know, you've done a lot of work both with your academic background and and I think in, a, in, a, in your capacity at blockchain.com working with people to help them understand, you know, where the risk really is and where the opportunity is. Uh, as you look at something like Libra, do you think these changes will change you know, our material in terms of what it was and what it is? Uh, and do you think regulators might perceive it as a material change or, or still somewhat risky? Yeah, I think both is the short answer to that question. I think we've already gotten some feedback from regulators that, yes, going to a more permissioned blockchain model uh, where controls can be introduced, particularly around money laundering, that's all very welcomed. Uh, and I think certainly uh, localizing the currency, going away from this this basket, is also a welcome change. Um, but it's going to be very market by market, I think, in terms of how this is received still. Uh, and you know, there could be different reasons why it's more acceptable in some markets versus others. There could be, for example, in the United States, 
you know, uh, with a push for a digital dollar uh, that, you know, we're seeing legislation in Congress going through advocating for a digital dollar. Libra is kind of a trial run to test out some technology, maybe, um, you know, offer some way to counterbalance a digital RMB that the Chinese are potentially going to introduce very soon. So that may be part of the motivation to let it run further in the U.S., although concerns about Facebook's privacy are still very prevalent. So the U.S. is by no means, I think, uh, assured uh, of, a, of a Libra launch. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of concerns overseas about a digital dollar, of course, dollarizing uh, countries uh, that have less stable, less strong currencies. And there I see you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lot of markets pushing back against allowing a U.S. dollar to um, infiltrate uh, so easily through WhatsApp and whatnot into their to their marketplaces. I think this is a really good point, Garrick. I mean, your point there about the, the Chinese um, central bank digital currency, I'll link us to the next story because I think, you know, we do know that uh, from Yahoo Finance, China's officially launched its major new blockchain initiative called the Blockchain-Based Services Network or BSN. And that's actually going to be the backbone infrastructure technology for massive interconnectivity throughout the mainland from city governments to companies and individuals. Um, and the network will also perform, uh, be the backbone to a Digital Silk Road to provide connectivity to trading partners around the globe um, and target pricing is less than $400 a year. It's going to be a permission chain, which is a fork of Hyperledger Fabric, which is super interesting. And, uh, you know, this is going to be quite a scaled deployment. Uh, and that's in the same week that they confirmed the launch of their um, digital yuan mobile app trials. So they're testing this mobile app um, for storing and exchanging digital yuan. Now, this looks and feels, I think, to a consumer a lot like using WeChat Pay does today. But to your point, Garrick, you know, China's been quite aggressive on the blockchain side and on the digital currency side, both domestically in terms of peer-to-peer and consumer payments or consumer-to-merchant payments. But with this digital Silk Road initiative, it really does potentially put itself in a position of threatening the dollar. And I'm going to throw that back to Garrick because I think this this is really interesting because we've had big tech platforms for a while doing commerce. But here you've almost got another layer down, which is connectivity between all of the big tech platforms to create like a marketplace of marketplaces that an SME can subscribe to for $400. That's really, really interesting geopolitically. But from a tech standpoint, are we going to see something in June, July that's, that's a real game changer? Or is this just fancy window dressing for tech platforms that are already doing interesting things anyway. Yeah, I think the timing on this is really, really difficult. Uh, obviously, we've got the COVID-19 crisis going on. You know, governments have a lot on their minds. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, at least in the U.S., uh, the priority is going to be on other things than approving the launch of Libra and so on. Uh so getting the timing question right, you know, is, is hard. We don't know what regulatory hurdles exactly, you know, everything needs, what, what checkpoints need to be, you know, crossed. I've never seen a really good list that says these are the exact things that need to happen at each market uh, for these to launch. So um, I, I, I don't know, you know, how big of a threat things are to the U.S. dollar, to the U.S.'s, you know, current leadership position, I think is also hard to say. Um, you know, the U.S. dollar is in a pretty strong position. We've again seen with COVID-19 um, a flight to U.S. dollars, uh, you know, when things really get rough. Um, you know, the, the RMB is not convertible. I think even with the digital RMB, it's unlikely to be fully convertible. It's not really, uh, you know, desired by the Chinese to make it into a full-blown open currency in the same way the U.S. dollar and the euro are. So I, I think we're still a ways off for the U.S. dollar to be really severely threatened. Um, 
No, I think it's a great point, Garrick. I mean, better tech doesn't mean more usable because it doesn't solve the underlying problem, right? And and, and Isabel, I'm interested in your views as to you know, how much of a motivation would these movements by the Chinese be to Western governments in, in the current context? I mean, if nothing else, friendly competition, right? I mean, if you've got a faster, cheaper, more scalable uh, underlying set of um, currency infrastructure, surely that's going to be helping your economy. Yeah, well, you know, these two initiatives are kind of related but different, right? When we're talking about the first one, the idea that they have this gigantic blockchain-based services network that is you know, completely throughout China, that's interesting. But as you just pointed out, Simon, there are a couple of things at play. One of them is technology. The other is international relations, international politics. And those are things that, that blockchain doesn't change, right? knowing that information on the blockchain is accurate and cannot be tampered with is great. Uh, that's obviously really powerful, but that's not the only thing that you need, right? So China can have that, but that doesn't necessarily um, impact trust on the global stage. There are, there are a lot more things at play. Also, interestingly, we're at a point where we're actually seeing supply chains moving suppliers from China to other developing countries, right? So then you see increase in demand for letters of credit because the risk is higher and you see all of this shifting in supply chains that is happening around all of this protectionism and it's happening in the context of a global pandemic. So, you know, so many, so many things at play that no one, no one factor is determinative. But when you look at the Chinese digital currency, that's interesting because that really does create competition, whether it's friendly competition or, or perceived threat, it certainly exists and that lights a fire under other central banks. And I think that that lights a fire under the Fed. But of course, the Fed is pretty busy right now with a few other things. No, this is a, a really good point. I'm just going to link something else as well. Of course, in the, the Digital Yuan initiative, Starbucks and McDonald's are among 19 firms that have said they're going to actually test that um, Digital Yuan. And the news outlet that, that reported this also said that uh, the, a meeting that involved uh, government agencies, China's four state-owned commercial banks and financial Tencent, as well as 19 restaurants, entertainment and retail shops are going to participate in this test. It doesn't specify whether the test would likely, when it's going to start or how how long it's going to last. Um, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see if these major brands do start adopting it, what experience they could bring back home or what's localized. Um, and there's something about the Chinese consumer is used to mobile payments already. Uh, this is more like a, an infrastructure upgrade for those restaurants rather than uh, potentially a real consumer change. How much of that is really true in, say, the United States, where you know, mobile payments have some, some room to grow and um, consumers are, have a different mindset? You know, Max, does, do you, can you see this concept of a digital dollar solving a problem fundamentally for uh, either the U.S. consumer or the Fed in, in an interesting way? Well, well, of course, if we, if we take the, the current crisis as an example, um, of, of course, uh, you know, and, and, and the Chinese, of course, would be saying this right now. But in, in fact, if a digital dollar did exist, then getting payments to, to those individuals and those businesses that, that need that financial aid the most uh, wouldn't be taking weeks or, or even longer. Um, that could be enabled very much more quickly, very much more swiftly. 
So um, yes, I do believe that that uh, you know digitizing the dollar or or other uh, central bank currencies um, does does bring some some huge efficiency to to the payments problem. Anybody else want to jump in on that point? Yeah, I would I would just add a few things there. I, I think. Uh, you know, certainly the speed uh, of delivering stimulus checks, uh, financial inclusion. Uh, a lot of people, you know, in countries even like the United States with a relatively high degree of bank account penetration still lack a bank account, millions of Americans, uh, you know, who would have to rely on very high cost uh, check cashing services to cash their physical checks. Some people don't even have an address. Uh, you know, students have been displaced. Others lack an address to receive a check. You know, there's the whole hygiene element. Uh, of, of switching to a, a digital payment system, digital currency. Uh, you know, we're not quite clear on, on you know, the, the passing of coronavirus through currency, but there is a concern around that. And, and then also the, efficient, the efficacy, I guess, of, of delivering uh, payments, you know, being able to, to track, uh, to, to solve kind of the lost check problem by moving everything to a ledger. Uh, you know, that's, that's huge. I mean, you know, not insignificant percentage of checks never wind up where they're supposed to. Um, so there's a huge number of benefits uh, to, to having a digital dollar around something like the coronavirus stimulus for certain. Absolutely, Garrick. And, and Isabel, you wanted to jump in there as well. Yeah, I was going to say some of what Garrick just mentioned, but I think it's worth drawing attention to how remarkable it is that there is so much conversation around central bank digital currency or payments on blockchain for this stimulus money. You know, in the CARES Act, we saw Waters introduce a bill to suggest that, that digital wallets would be the method to make these payments to, to individuals here in the United States. Sherrod Brown's also looking to continue pushing this agenda for the reason that Garrett just mentioned. We do have a problem with, with citizens here in the U.S. being unbanked. It's a smaller number, but, but it is actually still a material number that, that we want to solve and could use blockchain to solve. Now that said, as much as that shows that blockchain and CBDC are on people's minds on the Hill here, it, it's also early. So if we had had all the systems in place and we could have hit the button to make these payments using retail CBDC, that would have been fantastic. I think we all know that that's not where we are today. But fast forward, let's hope we never have another pandemic like this. But I imagine that we will once again be looking to distribute money to individuals. We can have that system in place next time. So now, now is an opportunity to see a little bit more about what is possible with blockchain, what is possible with CBDC, and be ready for the next time. Indeed. And I think uh, around that, though, there's there's always that sort of, is it Libra and private-led, or is it sort of uh, a government initiative, or is it somewhere in between? And the US is so interesting because, of course, it does have things like Visa, which whilst there is a lot of regulatory oversight, um, those organizations are fundamentally private. Uh, so there's an interesting model there that could emerge. And, and actually, this links us to the next story. We picked it up on Crypto Briefing, but it was covered in a number of places, which is where um, the Financial Stability Board has released a document addressing, you know, regulatory and supervisory oversight uh, raised by global stablecoins. Uh, it's the uh, it's only a consultation, but it reveals plans for a globally coordinated move against 
potentially a, a number of stable coins to bring them inside um, the regulatory perimeter. And they raise a number of concerns um, and uh, control and prohibit activities related to uh, operating, issuing, managing, providing custody to, or trading and exchanging those stable coins. I mean, does it surprise you, Isabel, that uh, regulators have looked at stable coins and said, ah, oh, that's in our perimeter, we should start to, to manage risk around this? No, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because when you're looking at a global stable coin, what you know is that central banks want to maintain control over monetary policy and monetary supply. And as soon as you see something that starts to take that out of their hands, of course, they're going to, to take a stand against that. So when you start seeing stable coins uh, that, that only represent, as the name implies, one currency, that's kind of on the continuum and, and more towards something that feels safer to them. But a global stable coin just erodes their power um, too much. That said, I think that anytime you see central banks or regulators more broadly coming to a unified view, that's hugely helpful, right? All anyone is looking for is uh, regulatory harmonization, consistency, you know, ability to know what to expect, what is and is not permissible. So I, I know that, that those who are looking to issue global stable coins are disappointed by that view, but clarity is valuable. I would agree with that. I mean, Max, do you think there's uh, something to be said here for A, unintended consequences, and B, the existing stable coins that have been out there, the, the tethers of the world, or anybody looking to create something in the in the sort of the decentralized world of, of DeFi and, and crypto assets? Uh, um, look, I think, uh, I, I think anybody that is naive enough to assume that the, the regulator wherever they are based is is going to have a, a an easy ride with um uh you know with accepting stable coins um at a national level let alone at a global level i, I think i think that's just naive i think everybody has seen that this is coming um if you take the fsb's paper to its extreme i think it it potentially uh, looks like it's the end of it, it's the end of Tether. It, it's the end of Libra. You know, it's the end of all these stablecoin um, projects because some of some of its um, uh, I, I think some of the analysis is is, is really quite damning. Uh, however, having said that, I think as I think as Isabel was saying, I think it's it's about stablecoins working with regulators rather than against them, and. And and overcoming um, their, their their various differences to to come up with workable stable coins, as for example Singapore has done. Um, I, I believe that's the only way forward. Globalization, I think, is 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 probably beyond my lifetime. <laughs> no, great great points, Max. I mean, Garrick, um, what what are your thoughts uh, when you see this from the from the FSB? Yes, uh, I, I, I would take a slightly less uh, uh, dire view, I guess, than Max about the fate of stablecoins. Um, you know, I've collaborated with the FSB uh, on past research on central bank digital currency and other other research projects. Um, you know, some of the folks involved with with drafting, uh, you know, the, the work there. Um, I mean, you know, in theory, yes, there could be calls for uh, a ban of a given stablecoin or stablecoins, but I think they have to. You know, certainly rise to a certain level 
of financial significance that none of them are anywhere close to, uh, threaten some type of financial stability. Uh, you know, now becoming too non-compliant could be again another reason for wanting to to, to clamp down or 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 even ban uh, a particular stablecoin, uh, and that's maybe the area where we might see more early action. Uh, and this is where projects like you know MakerDAO and the Dai stablecoin, you know, really more decentralized stablecoin, relatively speaking, are quite interesting. You know, how compliant can they be? Um, but I, I, uh, I, I think the FSB report was more kind of speaking to, you know, things honestly more like Libra, uh, in its kind of original vision, uh, you know, becoming quite large, threatening monetary and financial stability, not things like Tether, which are very, very small, relatively speaking. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, I guess the other point I would just make is I, I think, you know, we are entering kind of a brave new world of money. And I do think regulators, policymakers do have the chance uh, through observing projects like MakerDAO, other USD-backed stablecoins, Libra perhaps, to see what works, what doesn't, what technology is more resilient. Uh, you know, money and payment systems are things you want to make sure are very robust. And, and uh, I hope that policymakers and regulators, particularly for small things, uh, you know, balance out their concerns with the opportunity to learn around what's working, what technology is you know, uh, more scalable, efficient, and so on and so forth. I think it'd be a shame if, you know, there was too much of a crackdown, I guess, uh, given the size of, of stablecoins today. They're just too small to to worry about from a monetary and financial stability perspective at this stage. Yeah, the, that was what I was sort of hinting at with the unintended consequences. And I think these, the petri dish of stablecoins and DeFi especially, um, there is so much experimentation there that we can learn from. Uh, it, you know, the business models may not be new, but how uh, who, who the actors are and the roles they play fundamentally shift. And that's really, really exciting potentially for remaking markets uh, to be more efficient, fair and transparent. And that's squarely in, in the interest of regulators. I'm going to move us to an ad read and then take us to the next story. So bear with me, guys, as we go. This episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability, and sentences that are hard to read in copy. Um, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any industry uh, or uh, any type or size. With Corda, every business and every industry can leverage the power of blockchain, and a free trial of Corda Enterprise is available now on r3.com. Want something new in your morning routine? Well, we've got a daily show going on at 11FS that is sure to set your morning off on the right foot. Uh, it's taking place every day on LinkedIn. It's called The Breakfast Show. We chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all calling in remotely, of course. The show takes place at 7.30 a.m. Uh, PDT on the 11FS LinkedIn, and our global show starts at 8.30 a.m. GMT. Uh, actually, it would be British summertime at the moment with uh, RC. David Breer on his LinkedIn. So follow David Breer on LinkedIn or find 11FS on LinkedIn uh, and get a notification as soon as that show is live. Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, story number four comes from the FT, and this is about Andreessen Horowitz reportedly raising as much as $450 million for a new crypto fund. And of course, A16Z has been one of the first venture firms really with a fund dedicated to crypto. They raised $350 million back in 2018. This push deepens the VC's firm commitment to the sector as the global coronavirus 
uh, outbreak has rattled startup investors more broadly. But the fund has been one of the staunchest backers of Facebook's controversial Libra project. And the fundraising comes at a difficult time, both for VC and cryptocurrencies. So, uh, you know, this is a real, real doubling down from A16Z. I mean, um, Max, I'd be interested in your view, both in A16Z here as, as potentially patient investors, you know, they're one of the darlings of Sandhill Road. Uh, what does this mean for you when you see this this new fund being raised? I, th- I think that Andreessen um, Horowitz has, I, th- I think it's taken the right, right approach to investing in blockchain projects and cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and recently, of course, they have become regulated in a slightly different way to, to a traditional venture capital firm. Um, I, I think, well, I, I, I believe that they're taking a, a long-term view on, on, on their investments, of course, as, as, as these firms do. Uh, although their rate of investing in blockchain projects is, is definitely slowing down, that's, that's very evident from, from what I've seen, seen of them, um, I think that's also natural. Uh, I, I think that rather than investing in lots of different projects, I think they're probably moving to a, to a point now where they will commit more capital to um, projects that they've already been, um, been behind and, and looking at how they can, they can scale, scale existing projects. So, so I, look, I, I, th- I, think it's, I, think, I think it's very, very good news. Um, I think Andreessen's uh, involvement with with Project Libra clearly creates a bias for Project Libra. That's that's obvious. Um, but if you haven't read it, I would read uh, Mark Andreessen's essay on on how nations should be building right now. I think I think it was a, it was a very a very very good essay. So yeah, yeah it's I, called it. It's time to build. Yeah, that was it. Was a very good read indeed. Um, Garrick, I'm, I'm interested in your views here um, as an observer of the space and somebody working in it. Um, you know, does this regulatory shift mean that they're going to be looking more potentially at the asset than the companies, or a mixture of the two? And and how do you read this? This is a signal of intent for uh, other observers of the market. Yep. So uh, tracking VC money into the space is something I started doing when I started working at Coindesk in 2013. It was one of the kind of early metrics uh, that we could follow to try to understand how much interest there was uh, from the VC community and the potential of the space. Um, I mean, I think there's a few things that work here. You know, this announcement about regulatory shift and the ability of Anderson Horowitz to maybe invest in tokens I mean, that's, you know, been out there for a while and, and they've done some of that. You know, they've invested in the maker. Uh, you know, DAO token, um, you know, but uh, it's not clear to me, you know, whether their strategy has shifted a whole lot as a result of that regulatory shift. I think, you know, as was mentioned, Libra, uh, certainly a major project, Coinbase, uh, one of the winners in their portfolio, you know, getting, you know, later stage, probably requiring larger rounds if there's additional fundraising that's required there, Uh, you know, a timely uh, raise as well, given the economic environment, uh, the fact that capital markets may be a bit, bit dodgy and, and fundraising may be more difficult in the, the months and years to come. So being able to continue to play the long game, I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley have always looked at the blockchain space, the crypto space as a long game. This is a multi-decade uh, kind of opportunity, not a you know quick win. And so having a long-term view, having the resources to continue to see your winners your good companies, good teams sustained through a period like COVID-19 crisis, possibly something like a Great Depression 
uh, level economic disruption, I think is really important. So it's really smart of, of Andreessen Horowitz to raise and be in a strong position to support um, their, their companies. No, I think great points. The the market context is is interesting. They seem to have the funds now to, to weather the storm. And maybe, um, as we were saying earlier, uh, I think it was Isabel, you made the point that maybe uh, CBDCs and crypto haven't been the answer for this initial uh, shock. But uh, if it is time to build indeed, um, they could be part of the future plumbing and future infrastructure. Isabel, as you look at this, uh, there's probably, is 16.0 a bit of an outlier in just how vocal they are for one of the major VCs? Do you think there's a fundamentally different strategy and approach here that they have versus some of the other investors in the market? And um, what would you take a level of confidence from this as an observer or as a regulator or, or somebody else in the space? You know, it, it's interesting because Andreessen Horowitz is certainly a, a respected firm, right? And so people look at what they do and they, they have made some very good choices along the way. If you made a living trying to bet against them, you would be out of business, right? So they are they are certainly uh, out there forward thinking, but also historically very successful. And I do think that people are looking right now for any indication of where to go, right? If you watch the news, you look for people clinging to shreds of hope and indications of potential investments. And also you see a lot of people trying to buy the dip and that works out well in equities if you get the timing right. Uh, It works out much less well if you're a retail investor who thought that they could buy the dip on the May contract of crude, right? Anyone who went into May WTI got completely hosed because they didn't understand what they were doing. Uh, So this to me is maybe a great opportunity for them to buy the dip because I think that we're trying to figure out what goes on sale, right? Will it be technology companies? Will it be startups? Will it be companies in the tech space? And is the dip only a temporary dip because there is so much promise for blockchain to help with the current crisis, as well as all the things that blockchain was being used to solve before this? You know, we're so focused on coronavirus use cases, but all those other use cases that we've been working on for half a decade or more now, they're still humming along. You know, there there is a lot of investment opportunity both in blockchain and in cryptocurrency right now. So I think they may have it right. I, I like that point. There's a lot of investment opportunity because even if you take coronavirus out of it for a second, the blockchain had been in that trough of disillusionment probably for for a year, eighteen months now. Uh, you know, from the hype of two thousand end of two thousand seventeen, early two thousand eighteen, that you know we've really seen sort of a fundamentally different narrative where you know you mention blockchain now to to most people in tech and they go, oh, you know, they kind of roll their eyes unless they're sort of building something in DeFi and then you know it's kind of both sublime and ridiculous. You've got people who really, really are at the cutting edge doing things. You've got people working in the deep plumbing of financial services, but then you've got like the executive conversation that's almost eye-rolling at it. Um, Max, I want to come to your perspective on that because um, if we are in the trough of dissolution, where's the promise here for financial services and for the economy? Is is this tech actually fundamentally ready and, uh, and when? Because it feels like for five years we've been saying when. I... I don't think I don't think the technology is is, is ready yet. Um, I think that all the issues around scalability, security, usability have have still to be overcome if we're going to go mainstream with 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 this technology. Um, we see 
I, I call it the graveyard of POCs because there are a lot of proof of concepts that never go beyond that. And that's because some of them aren't really good use cases, but actually quite a lot of them don't move forward because the, the technology doesn't afford scalability or usability. So I think, I think those, those things have got to be solved and they're going to take time because you also need decent interoperability between public chains and private chains, um, et, et cetera. Um, so I, I, I have to say that I think there's a lot more work to be done uh, before, we, before we go really mainstream with, with, with blockchain-based applications. Well, good that there's a patient investor on the horizon who's, who's willing to invest in that work. And uh, there may be something that changes quickly in the near future, though. Um, we picked this up from uh, Coindesk, but as we know, um, there is a Bitcoin halving that is imminent. Um, so it's, it's due to happen next month as we record this, so sometime around mid-May. And of course, as we know, uh, the halving means that the block reward that miners receive for, uh, for sort of mining a Bitcoin would drop from around 12.5 Bitcoin to 6.25 Bitcoin. Um, and assuming demand remains consistent, that cut in regular issuance should drive up the price, argue many balls. Uh, and of course, in 2012, we did see um, that the value did shoot up by ATX. And in 2016, it was preceded by a 300x rise. Uh, however, options traders are buying puts or bearish bets. And uh, that's kind of interesting. Where, where This is the first halving where we've seen this go on. Um, I mean, Garrick, uh, as, a, as a veteran of this space, uh, you know, has has Bitcoin peaked as it as it kind of uh, has, has it found its fair value, or are we just speculators going to speculate? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, look, we're we're seeing Bitcoin go through a lot of things for the first time. This is its first financial crisis, its first pandemic. You now it's the third halving. Uh, you know, and, and the other two have you know uh, been followed by price rises. That doesn't mean that you know you know past is going to repeat. Um, you know, certainly there is a huge debate about how priced in these halvings are. Um, you know, there's this media effect uh, that typically correlates with, you know, upward interest and in, in upward prices that maybe the halving helps uh, kind of, uh, you know, kick off. Um, you know, look, we think that, you know, at blockchain.com, we're very, you know, optimistic on the future of crypto assets and Bitcoin being one of the leading ones uh, as a hard asset. We think it has some real advantages. We're actually about to publish, um, you know, a research report on gold back tokens another hard asset, comparing those two to Bitcoin, looking at, uh, you know, gold's performance against Bitcoin and pros and cons and so on. Um, you know, we think this environment is very positive for hard assets, putting the whole halving aside. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, new supply is going to get cut in half. There's going to be a period of kind of shake, shakeout in the mining community as miners, you know, uh, who can't necessarily just flip a switch and turn everything off, have to like sell down the weak hand, so to speak, sell down their, their Bitcoins. That's partly probably why the price has uh, been a little bit uh, less buoyant in the wake of, uh, of COVID-19 and the crisis. Uh, but we think ultimately, you know, the reduction in supply, like you said, if demand continues to stay at its current level or increases is, is very bullish. Um, but look, you know, <laughs> that, that could all be priced in and, and we could see the price plunge following the halving as well. Um, certainly one thing that's different today about the Bitcoin market, it is a lot easier to bet against the price, uh, to borrow, to go short, uh, to use leverage to bet on the, uh, you know, kind of the price declining uh, with the futures markets. 
historically, the, the the playing field was was lopsided in favor of kind of the longs, and and so uh, you've got companies like Renaissance Technologies coming into the marketplace. Uh, you know, I'm sure they'd be just as happy to make money seeing Bitcoin's price plummet as as go up, right? They're they're I don't sense that they're necessarily ideological about it. So um, we'll see, but I, I think you know over the medium term. Uh, blockchain.com's position is is very you know bullish still on on Bitcoin and crypto assets more generally. No, that's, that's exciting. I think it's important to say to any listeners uh, that is not investment advice and do your own research uh, and make sure you get qualified first. Um, I mean, Bitcoin uh, a few years ago was a pariah, and suddenly it sort of crept into legitimacy and and kind of uh, it's starting to look like it's got a market structure around it. It's starting to form a small part of um, you know a portfolio in in many many cases. You know, are we seeing a world in which this this new asset class is is making a, a, a slow entrance and suddenly it's not the bad guy anymore Libra is do, do you see that assessment or do you think uh, Bitcoin still has some challenges from a regulatory perspective I um, I, I, I absolutely agree with with what was said earlier um, medium term I think it's uh, uh, I think it's a really attractive asset I believe in in this notion of scarcity I mean the you know, Bitcoin halving next month, what, what does it really do? Well, it improves scarcity. Um, yes, I also agree the derivatives market is playing a much more important part in, in price movement than it ever did. Um, but I, I, I think it, it still has a very stable future. It's, it's, become, it's become the gold brand in the crypto world, let's, let's face it. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, lots of stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Um, story from the block that apparently Facebook plans to hire 50 people in Ireland for its Calibra subsidiary. Uh, Reddit is going to begin exploring tokenized points systems. And a story in Coindesk, uh, hackers drain decentralized protocol DeForce of $25 million uh, and then return it two days later. God bless them. White hats everywhere. All righty. It's time for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Dan Tapiero, or uh, DTAPCAP on Twitter. And the tweet reads... uh, Bitcoin is trading at around $15,000 in Lebanon. Um, classic emerging market funding crisis made worse by deflationary dollar peg. That is, quote unquote, breaking. Um, study this case as it will be a model for other weak emerging markets uh, and will be a key part of the macro story behind the Bitcoin upcoming price rally. So, um, Garrick, we talked earlier about uh, sort of uh, the US dollar and would, would anything threaten the dollar in emerging markets and dollarization, you know, the flight to the dollar in emerging markets. Suggestion here is Bitcoin is interesting um, given given the disparity in price, but we we have seen this before, right? We saw this with uh, was it Zimbabwe? You know, it was trading at a, at a real premium there. Do you think that uh, this is bigger than that? That Bitcoin's more usable now in those emerging markets, and does it have a real shot at becoming something that competes with a dollar, or is that still still a ways off? I mean, that certainly is a long ways off. Uh, you know, anything's possible. Um, I think, you know, coming back to the question you asked earlier, too, about the regulatory uh, dimension, I think that's an interesting question. I think, you know, many central banks and regulators have looked at Bitcoin and said, oh, this is like an asset. Uh, it's not really a currency. It's not really a threat to monetary policy. It's kind of like a collectible or something people just want to own and hoard. Uh, that's That puts in kind of a different regulatory bucket than a lot of the stable coins or certainly something like Libra, which... Could have a massive billion user footprint pretty quickly. 
uh, and, and really pose a more monetary policy challenge right right from the early go. Um, but uh, to your question about you know kind of emerging markets, um, I mean I think you know there's always been this friction right with dollarization. You've got to get the physical dollars uh, you know into places like Zimbabwe or Argentina, and there sure is a lot of them. I mean there's billions. Uh, some seventy five percent of the hundred hundred dollar bills have been uh, produced or supposedly overseas. You know, there is the euro dollar market, but that's, you know, for more sophisticated institutions uh, creating dollar balances through banks. Um, a digital dollar, a digital stablecoin obviously could could insert itself into a Lebanon, you know, and into Venezuela. And in some would argue is a, a better, uh, you know, kind of for someone who's on the economic margins, you know, living paycheck to paycheck day to day. You know, a digital dollar is arguably what you know someone like that might want to be holding versus something like Bitcoin, given the volatility. Um, having said that, if you're in a country, you know that's at sanctions risk, you know these centralized stablecoins, you can have your accounts frozen. If you're in Venezuela, for example, using a you know New York you know U.S. dollar backed stablecoin, that's a risk. You know, and so again, that might push someone back to either physical cash, which might still be the best bet, or something like Bitcoin. Uh, where there isn't that kind of freeze uh, feature in, in, in stablecoin smart contracts you often see for compliance reasons. So yes, I do think I do think Bitcoin is a winner uh, in overseas markets. I think I think stablecoins also are interesting options as well, particularly maybe the more decentralized ones in more regulated markets. Um, but you know that's uh, that's to be seen, I guess. It's going to be interesting to watch. All right, um, Max and Isabel, any, any uh, thoughts on this tweet? Yeah. I- my first thought is, you know, from when I first started working at R3, which is just over four years ago now, which seems like forever and also a day at the same time. Uh, and I guess that depends on which day you're asking me. I, I, you know, I've always said if Bitcoin's only place in the world is for an asset for people in unstable countries to use, to hold because when they're afraid that that what they're holding in their local currency is going to be cut down to 10% today's value tomorrow, that's a great way for them to use it, right? And that's Bitcoin serving a real function. And if it is to bank the unbanked kind of in, in function, in essence, that's a great way to use it. So although I don't know where Bitcoin goes or, or how it's regulated, I do think that the use of Bitcoin in emerging markets is a potentially very powerful uh, use case for it. And in countries like Turkey, does it become very attractive because of what Garrick just said about the friction to get into U.S. dollars? Absolutely. Mm, interesting stuff. All right. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, can you believe that happened already? That was, uh, that was a great one, guys. So thank you so much. I'm going to ask uh, where people can find out more about what you're up to and uh, and your good self. So, uh, Garrick, uh, how can people find out more about you and, uh, of course, the work you do at Blockchain? Yep. So just come to blockchain.com. And if you're interested in our research, you can uh, scroll down to the bottom of the page, click on the research tab. Like I mentioned, we have a, a new report coming out. Uh, maybe today, uh, looking at gold-backed tokens and how they compare to uh, traditional means of owning gold and, and uh, Bitcoin, for example. Fantastic, Garrick. I'm sure to check that one out. And how about yourself, Max? Uh, go to zilliqa.com. Perhaps join some of Zilliqa's community channels to, to see what people are saying about, about the platform. And about me, go to my LinkedIn profile, Max, Max Cantelia.
Thank you, Max, so much. And Isabel? So you can find information about R3 at r3.com. You can also use that page to get you to information about our platform, Corda. You can see things that we're doing. You can sign up for newsletters. And you can always reach me on Twitter at Isabel Corbett. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant stuff. Uh, just to remind you that everybody listening, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of digital financial services. We have a new uh, report on coronavirus and its impact on financial services available on uh, 11FS.com now. So you go to info.11FS.com uh, forward slash COVID-19 uh, and check out that entire resource center. So uh, yeah, if you want to see what's going to happen in financial services over the next six months, 12 months and 18 months, do, do check out that report uh, thank you for listening thank you very much to our guests we'll see you all soon